0: Well, good evening, Wednesday night Bible study and guests that are joining us tonight. As we begin our Bible study, we want to do that with prayer. And I want to start uh, first, if you've been watching the news, you know uh, that this week we lost Ravi Zacharias. And like Billy Graham, it marks the passing of a great era, I think, of generational teachers and leaders. Ravi grew up in India along with four siblings, and he did not do very well in school, in fact, he would rather play cricket than go to school. And because of that, he was often a disappointment to his father, and he was frequently beaten by his dad. His sisters, though, convinced him to go to a Youth for Christ rally, and he was the only one to walk forward to receive Christ that night. But in his heart, uh, there, was, there was struggle upon struggle, and later, Ravi Zachariah attempted suicide. And Youth for Christ leader Fred David visited him in the hospital and read scripture to him. And uh, it was that visit that transformed his faith and his life. And he left the hospital, a transformed 17-year-old. Friends, I I share that with you to say, never underestimate the value of your life to God. You may be contemplating, who would miss me if I wasn't in this world? Or you might wonder if you matter to anyone. And I just want you to remember the 17-year-old who God saved beyond a suicide attempt, who would bring thousands upon thousands into the kingdom of God. And, and many people today are giving thanks for Ravi Zacharias. Uh, this morning, or this evening, I also want to ask you to be in prayer for Bonnie Smith uh, as she recovers from a successful surgery uh, this past Monday, but for her and Fred as well in the loss of Simon, uh, their much loved pet. Connie Schumann's daughter-in-law, Debbie Schumann, is healing from her operation on a broken leg. Uh, Rose Nye's son-in-law, Rick Presley, has a port now for chemotherapy to begin to treat leukemia. So we want to continue to be in prayer for Rick Presley. Uh, We want to continue to pray for the Seaver family, for Robert, Natalie, Cordelia, and Ben. Uh, We are still waiting for the arrival of a little one. So we're praying for a safe delivery of their newest addition. And then I'm going to ask that we continue to be in prayer for the guidance of our president and vice president as they lead the national recovery efforts. Uh, I think it calls for godly wisdom and discernment to know how much freedom to offer at this point as we're opening up uh, the economy again. And yet, as you see in our local news, we just had an outbreak of 20 cases of coronavirus linked to the Dole plant here in town. So we need to pray for guidance and for the healing of our nation as we continue to face this pandemic. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Houston, he addressed church openings. And Lord willing, uh, we are going to be back in worship on the first Sunday in June. Uh, But as churches begin to open, uh, we are urged by the Lieutenant Governor to do the following. That we encourage social distancing. Uh, That's our new norm, uh, that we would make extra sanitizing measures, and we will certainly be doing that, and that we wear face coverings. Uh, That's something that's hard to enforce, but we're going to strongly suggest that. Uh, What I find interesting is our lieutenant governor quoted from our passage today in Genesis 4, when he said, we need to be our brother's keeper and love and treat our neighbors as ourselves. And then let's be in prayer for our farmers. Uh, They are losing uh, from what Cheryl has told me, a bushel an acre for every day past Mother's Day that they cannot get in the field. So let's, let's remember them this evening as well. I'm going to ask as we begin our study that you bow with me, and let's go to the Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to bless you for your mercies that have been falling upon us in a very difficult and a very stressful time, even as you've given us the showers that we've had. Uh, everything we receive can be called a miracle because it comes from you. That you would deal with us at all, knowing the division of our hearts, that you would come to us with the grace and the love you have that is so abundant uh, despite our rebellion. Uh, You are the God that can guide us even in the hardest of places to strike the rock and uh, life will will gush forth. And so, Father, I thank you that your command always uh, is responded to in creation. You give a command to the skies, they pour. Uh, you give a command to the mountains, they move. You give a, a, a command of creation and things happen. And you give us the food that we have to eat. You give us our homes. You give us the beauty of fellowship. Uh, you have certainly loosed the winds this past week to clean out the trees and, and just bring a breath of freshness to our environment. And I want to thank you for that. Father, in spite of all the good things you've done, uh, we look at our world and sometimes in our own lives and we see our bent to keep on sinning in spite of your wonders. But Father, we believe, we know that you are and we want to humble ourselves before you so that our lives don't become a a day-to-day futility. God, we seek you. We eagerly pray for a, a renewed passion to turn to you and we will always proclaim in our heart and in our existence that, God, you're the one not only worth remembering, you are our rock. You are the most high. You are our redeemer. And you are the one to whose mercy we appeal. Only you can forgive our iniquities. Only you can keep us from being destroyed. Father, you have held back your anger for so long. Uh, You have not allowed your wrath to be released upon this world. So the one more can come to believe and follow you as Lord and Savior. And Father, as long as you give us that grace, I pray that you would give us a a submissiveness, give us an obedience that honors you for who you are, a great and mighty Lord, a warrior, a king. Father, we love you. We thank you for being our shepherd. Restore the integrity of our heart and lead us with your skillful hands. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today uh, I have asked that you uh, turn to the book of Genesis, because that's where we left off last week, of course. And as we do that, I'm going to remind myself and you of a story about my very first car. Uh, I remember the day that I found out, in fact, it was my car that convinced me, or at least I convinced myself, it was time to trade it in before the cost of repairing and maintaining it became too much. Now, I had a very good mechanic because the mechanic I used was none other than my dad, Van Buren Warax, who was an independent mechanic and dealer for Marathon. Uh, And dad had a lot of pride over finding my first car, that Dodge Dart Swinger. And it led us to hold on to it as long as possible. And dad helped me learn a lot because he would say, your brakes are squeaking, guess what? You get to learn how to change brakes or the uh, power steering hose is leaking. Guess what? You better learn how to to get in there and, and and change it. You know, today that car in my mind is is like a long-lost friend. But there came a day that I felt Bessie, as I affectionately call the old girl, <laughs> had reached the end of the road. Now, as hard as that was, the only wise thing to do was to invest in a new car. Now that's a decision that I have second guessed more than once, but now that I'm fifty-three, What seemed like Beige Betty uh, that that was being passed down in that State Farm commercial, when I thought Beige Betty wasn't cool enough for a young man, now, you know, I wish that I'd kept that car. I wish that I'd maintained, but above all, I wish that it was something that could be restored. We come back tonight to Genesis, and we're going to be in a new section beginning this evening, uh, chapters 4 through 11. Now, in the end, we're going to focus on chapter 4, uh, but... I want to look at this section because the message is very simple. From chapter 4 through 11, the message is, apart from Christ Jesus, there is no hope for this world. Uh, This world will not get better because we won't get better, again, apart from Jesus Christ. So the only wise thing to do is to invest in a new creation, and that's what Jesus came to bring about. So again, I want you to turn to Genesis in your Bible, and I want to give you a brief history of sin. Uh, and hopefully answer a few questions you might have along the way. Uh, So let's start with a recap. Okay, We've been through three chapters now, and what have we seen so far? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw creation. And the idea was for all of creation, for all of mankind, to live under God's creative, His life-giving, His soul, mind, and body-sustaining rule. And the situation where everyone is doing that, is what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. God is on the throne of all creation, but more importantly, creation begins with God on the throne of Adam and Eve's heart. Now in the first half of of Genesis three in verses one through six, we saw how sin entered the picture and shattered the frame. Uh, Sin is the attitude of rebellion that crosses God out of the picture. And when Adam and Eve made that step, it was in response to the temptation of Satan. So you could say that Adam and Eve began to step across the line into the kingdom of Satan. Their allegiance towards God was threatened. And last week in the second half of Genesis 3, starting in verse 7 and going all the way through 24, we saw how death entered the picture. You see, death in the Bible is not the end of existence. It's the end of existence in, a, in an open relationship, though, with God. It's separation from God. And physical death makes that separation irreversible. I think of the story of, uh, of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, verse 26. And the rich man learns there in Luke sixteen, twenty six, from Abraham, who says, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So the question is, was there any hope then by the end of the events of Genesis 3? Absolutely. Because we saw back in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of salvation in the Bible. Have a look at that again in Genesis 3.15. The Lord is addressing there the serpent. The one that John is, is told of in Revelation twelve nine, where it says the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So God says in Genesis three fifteen in the message paraphrase, I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll wound your head you'll wound his heel. The contemporary English version says, you and this woman will hate each other. Your descendant and hers will always be enemies. One of hers will strike you on the head and you will strike him on the heel. In other words, there's reason to hope that this rebellion orchestrated by Satan will one day be put down. Because Satan is ultimately going to be crushed by one of Eve's offspring or by a son of man, and that man is going to get struck in the process. And if you want to know more about what that means, all you have to do is go to Isaiah 53 or to any of the Gospels and read about what happened to the son of man, to Jesus. And you see, that's why from this moment on in Genesis 3.15, the Bible is so interested in genealogies because people were constantly looking for the coming of this offspring of the woman. You and I just read over the genealogies, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so as though it was just some boring, rote, historical document. No. It is generation upon generation of people excited and eagerly looking for the coming of Jesus. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it begins, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And I'm sure at that time, like every other birth, the question was, is he the promised savior? But it turns out that Cain is actually the first murderer. You know, the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, it tells us much more about Cain than Abel. In fact, not one word is recorded from living Abel. But the author of Hebrews will say in Hebrews eleven four, that through faith, through Abel's faith, though he died, he still speaks. So what does Abel speak to us even in death? You think of the time this happened in Genesis four. It was dusk, Cain was working late, not wanting to face his parents, because he's trying to disguise his guilt infused fear with a preoccupation towards his crops. And suddenly the unmistakable voice of the Lord sends a shock through his core. Where is Abel, your brother? Cain had grown to loathe his brother. It had been building for years, I'm sure. No matter what, Abel always seemed to turn a situation to his benefit. Was there a conflict? Abel the humble, he loved to be the first to reconcile. Did did anyone need help? Abel the servant, he loved to be the first to offer it. Was there an injury? able to compassionate, love to be the first one to comfort. Even when Cain was shown greater endurance and ingenuity in his work, Abel could rob him of any satisfaction with a virtuoso performance of self-effacing virtue. But what Cain found most maddening about Abel was his pious faith. He flaunted his tender conscience and precious devotion to God for the admiration of God would give. Cain could barely stomach how his father and mother recognized that. With every perceived humiliation, Cain caressed this secret anger, this brooding bitterness that Abel was only using goodness to show himself superior to Cain. But that morning, Cain had suffered a crushing blow. The Lord had required each brother to present an offering, else why would they have brought it to begin with? There's something innate in them and the first fruits of their labors. And Cain saw in this an opportunity. This time, Abel could not upstage him. And Cain would prove, yeah, he could excel in devotion too. So he made sure his offering lavishly exceeded the, the required amount, I'm sure, of his best produce. But when the Lord reviewed Cain's offering, he rejected it. Cain, I'm sure, was, was stunned. And to add insult to injury, the Lord accepted Abel's comparatively simple lamb offering. Humiliated again, but this time before God. And Cain was beside himself. His hate metastasized into horror. And Abel had outshined himself for the last time. By late afternoon, Abel's lifeless body lay in a remote field, abandoned in the hope that that an animal would come and and just conceal the fratricide. But the Lord's question left Cain naked and exposed. We're we're told in Hebrews 4.13 that everything is open and bare before the Lord with whom we have to do. And he lied with the anger of cornered guilt. I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? What it was, in fact, he didn't know Uh, was that his silenced brother had not stopped speaking. The Lord replies, what have you done, Cain? Uh, Verse nine, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Yes, the blood of of dead Abel cried out to God for justice. But the faith of dead Abel still speaks. So what would he be saying still to us through faith? One thing I, I can hear is that God only accepts Faith-fueled offerings. It's significant that God doesn't provide details about either one of their offerings beyond what we find in in the Bible story. And I can imagine Cain trying to win God's approval with some impressive-looking offering. But it could have just have easily been a stingy offering or an exactingly precise offering and nothing more. The point is that that right from the beginning, God draws our attention away from what fallen humans think is important, namely how our works can make us look impressive, to what God thinks is important, namely how our works reveal our trust and our faith. You see, all of Scripture teaches us, and like Habakkuk 2.4 says, the righteous will live by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, because without faith it's impossible to please God. And Abel was commended for his righteousness by God because he gave an offering in faith. Cain's offering was evil because without humble trust in God, even our offerings, you know, hear this, any work that we ever do for God, it it can be seen as evil no matter if they appear to everyone else, they're obedient or impressive if we don't have the right heart. The second thing I can hear Abel saying and speaking today is that the world will hate you if you live by faith in Jesus. Now the Apostle John makes it clear because he says in 1 John 3:12 and 13, we shouldn't be like Cain, who was the evil or, excuse me, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Abel was the first to discover, as Paul would warn Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. To let our light shine before others so they can see our good works will at times expose others' darkness or others' wickedness, and it will arouse their hatred like flipping on the light in a dark room and how people complain. Jesus himself said, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Some of you they will put to death. Some even at the hands of parents and brothers and relatives and, and friends. Righteous faith arouses an evil hatred. And I know in the story, we'd rather see ourselves as able. But sometimes we're all Cain. We were at one time, as uh, the writer will say in Romans eight seven and Ephesians four eighteen, we're enemies towards God. We're hostile to God and alienated from him. Abel, the first martyr of faith, is the foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus, whose blood, according to Hebrews twelve twenty four, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. For though Abel's innocent blood cried out for justice against sin, it's Jesus' innocent blood that cries out for mercy for sinners, not for justice against sin. Abel's blood exposed Cain in his his wretchedness, and Jesus' blood covers ours and cleanses us from all sin. So as we seek to present our bodies, as Paul would say, living sacrifices before God, let's remember The only thing that makes this acceptable to God, the only thing that makes it a spiritual time of worship, whether it's on Sunday morning or Wednesday evening or in our daily act of gratitude and and devotion, the only thing that makes it an acceptable service is a childlike faith in Jesus. So let's remember, the only reward it's likely to earn from the world is anger and hatred. Look in Genesis 4, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain after they had brought their offerings and Cain's had been rejected. God said to him in verse 6, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. But like us, Cain can't do it. He can't master sin. Sin masters him. Verse eight. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now on down to verse 17. Cain lay with his wife. Now now where she came from, I get it. It's one of those many questions that Genesis doesn't answer. But it says, he lay with his wife, she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. To Enoch, verse 18, was born Irid, and Ired was the father of Mahujael. And Mahujael was the father of Methushael. And Methushael was the father of Lamech. And Lamech married two women. So that verse, in verse 18, Lamech is the first bigamist. And in the kingdom of Satan, I want you to see what he does. He first, he goes after the sanctity of life. Then he goes after the sanctity of marriage. Verse 23, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. In other words, proportionate justice goes, you hurt me, I'll kill you. So welcome to the world of spiraling revenge and of vendettas passed down through the generations. There seems to be no hope in, in these offspring of Eve. And so, verse 25, Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel, since Cain killed him. And Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. Now here's the hint that that hope may lie in Seth's family line. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that great? At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, as you read on through this, here's the heading to the new section in chapter five. This is the account of Adam's line. This is one of the Bible's own recaps. Verse one, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. Verse three, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness in his own image, and he named him Seth. And after Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. You know, if the ages of people trouble you in the Bible, 800 years, 930 years, uh, you need to, to, to borrow or buy a commentary on Genesis. Uh, Derek Kidner's Tyndale Old Testament commentary is a good one but uh, some professors of geriatrics believe there's no inherent reason why we couldn't live much longer than we do and they're right because mortality was not created into us it's it's like what manufacturers call designed obsolescence which is why your toaster will not last forever it will blow up in 5 years time or your yeti it will not be leak free forever it will start to leak no, mortality was imposed upon us as judgment. And it's always been in God's hands to, to how fast acting that judgment actually is. Now skip the genealogy down to chapter 5, verse 28. It says there, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. And he named him Noah, said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands, Caused by the ground, the Lord has cursed. Verse 30, after Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Can you imagine becoming a parent of newborns when you're 500 years old? (laughs) And Lamech here, is refer, that refers to a different man from the bigamist Lamech referred to earlier. And that will bring us, <coughs> excuse me, that will bring us all the way to the second judgment. Not the one of Cain, but the judgment of the flood in chapter 6. Uh, and, and actually, if you look at verse 5, you'll see what the day, uh, the world of Noah's day was actually like. Verse 5 says, the Lord saw how great mankind's wickedness on the earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. In other words, every single human being was and is like one of those croquet balls you hit on the lawn uh, with a bias or inclination, which means they always go off a straight line of God's will. Uh, we're, we're kind of like those shopping carts you pick up at Walmart or Kroger's or Myers that, that just, you cannot push them straight. However great you push it, however much force you put behind it, the wheels still won't turn the way you want them to. And that's how we were all born. And we first saw this back in chapter four with Cain. Cain was a born sinner. Something happened to Adam and Eve's nature as a result of their rebellion, which meant they became predisposed, or biased or inclined towards rebellion against God and His ways. But that's not how they were created. It's how they became. I think of the illustration of one guy I know that said, I remember the first time as a young boy I took money out of my mother's purse. At first it was a huge step, but then I remember... It seemed to get easier. It seemed small, and and the moment I took that step, though, it changed me. The step weakened me towards stealing again. One dollar became five. A five dollar bill became a ten dollar bill. And ten dollars became twenty dollars. And twenty dollars became, he said, the worst beating of my life when my mom found out. Now, that's a small and inadequate illustration of what happened when Adam and Eve rebelled. Human nature changed. It was weakened towards sin. And Cain and Abel and Seth and Noah and you and me have all inherited that fallen nature, or sin nature, as the Bible puts it. Which is why our parents never needed Montessori school. Our parents never needed kindergarten to help learn the idea of lying. We're all born with that talent. We all know that it's wrong to be selfish. But the truth is, being selfish can be necessary to ensure your own health and well-being. You know, it, it, it can be by putting ourselves first and making personal fulfillment a priority that we're better equipped to serve others by first helping ourselves. I tell caregivers all the time, watching out for parents or family members, unless you take care of yourself, you're not going to be here to take care of your loved one. But there's a line that we can cross. It was back in August the 30th of 2016. An author by the name of Shaylin Pham. Shaylin Pham, Ph.D., wrote a book entitled The Joy of Me, The Art of Being Selfish. The Joy of Me promises the reader to help bring you to a greater sense of self-confidence and willpower by teaching you to focus on your own wants and needs. To use a uniquely intuitive combination of psychology and spirituality, she shows you how to embrace the true measure of your worth. And now Shaylin Pham, PhD, she never had to write a book to get the point across of being selfish. We're born looking out for number one and so on in every area of our personalities. Verse six goes on to say, the Lord was grieved, therefore, that he'd made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I'll wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I made them. And then comes one of the most extraordinary verses in verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now I've tried to reconcile that back with verse five. Was Noah included in verse five? Yes. You see, verse five is about everyone all the time. So Noah was part of the sin problem too. And yet verse eight, he found favor, literally grace, Uh, The Bible word for utterly undeserved, utterly unexpected love in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, the Lord brought Noah back into a relationship with himself. And to use our language, Noah became or was a believer. And as a result, verse 9, this is the account of Noah. This is what God did in and through Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. Now, that does not mean he was sinless. It means he was put right with God by grace, and, and as a result, he lived to please God. Verse 10 tells us that Noah had three sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. And God saw how corrupted the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. In other words, God's instructing him, you're going to build a massive lifeboat. Verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the, the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you'll enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. A covenant, friends, is simply a promise. When people get married, they they make a covenant. They say before family and friends and God, I will or I do. And in verse 18, the Lord says to Noah, I'll establish my covenant with you. Well, Noah's already in a covenant relationship with God. But the implication of that verse is that God has already forgiven Noah and promised to forgive him and stick with him. And God is saying, as I judge the rest of the world, I'm going to establish my promise with you. I'm going to see that you come through this judgment unscathed. And he does. He comes through unscathed this period of the flood, and he builds the ark and gets into it. The flood comes, the water rises and recedes. Uh, Then I want you to flip ahead to chapter 8, verse 18. It says in verse 18 in chapter 8, Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, all the birds, everything that moves along the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. It always seems tough to me that they survived the flood, and, and, and then within minutes of disembarking, to see they get busy in a sacrifice. But I think Noah understood the, the principle of sacrifice that God had given them, and he's given to us as early as Cain and Abel. He understood that the animals represent him, their, their death represent what he deserved. And the whole process represented the fact that we can only be spared judgment if a substitute takes our judgment instead. And Noah, fresh from surviving, uh, obviously the worst judgment ever to hit the earth, he sacrifices in order to say to the Lord, God, all that died, that, that should have been me. I didn't deserve to be the family, to be the one in this ark. I don't deserve to be here. I'm just a sinner like the rest of them were. Please forgive me and keep me forgiving. Otherwise, we'll have another flood in no time at all. Verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I've done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And friends, that promise is why we're still here today. That promise is why the Mad River is not going to rise too high. That that promise is why the rain is not lashing us down indefinitely and Buck Creek is not overflowing. It's not because the world today has any better than it was in Noah's day. It's because of this promise of God that will not bring a universal judgment of sin ever again within history. But notice the time limit to this purpose. Verse 22, as long as the earth endures. What he's saying is, in other words, he won't do it again within the window of history, but one day, he will wrap up history And there will be a judgment that makes the flood look like a drop in the bucket. Second Peter 3.7 says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are preserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. John Calvin once wrote, It's not to be marveled at that there was a flood, but there was only one. And it ought to marvel us every day that we're even here not to mention a cause for thanksgiving and praise. Every minute of every hour of every day, we're not getting what we deserve, and we're getting what, what we don't deserve. There was a chapel speaker at Ozark Christian College a few years ago, and he spoke on the title, Life is Good, So Who Needs God? And a lot of people would say that. But, but I would say my point in response to that would be, Life is good because of God. To say life is good, who needs God is a bit like climbing a tree, going out to sit on a branch and saying, This branch is great, who needs tree trunks? Or it's like enjoying that ATM, laundry, restaurant, taxi service, <laughs> all rolled into one that we call home, and saying, You know, home's good, but who needs parents? There's a basic failure to recognize dependence. And God is in a lose-lose situation if he judges us through suffering we shake our fist at him if he's good to us we take him for granted and ignore it and because of the promise in chapter 8 verse 22 this world does look like something you can take for granted it's it's apparently solid it's apparently reliable and if there's no one behind it to whom we owe everything well, this world is, is like the image on a 4K computer screen. It looks so solid, you can take it for granted. But all it will take is one click of the mouse, and you can close it down. Friends, God holds the mouse of the universe. Verse 8, Then God of chapter 9, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all of life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. And every time you see a rainbow, Uh, Every time you see a bow, it's literally a sign that God has hung up his bow and arrows. In in other words, it's a sign that he's holding back judgment until the end of history. Friends, there is a storm of judgment awaiting the end of time. But there is currently a a rainbow of grace before it. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. And go and fill the whole earth. That should ring bells with us with Genesis 1, verse 28. It's like a new beginning. As if the Lord, the director, has picked up one of those clicker boards they use in the movies and said, Take two. But after the flood, has anything really changed? No. The flood demonstrated God's judgment on sin. But it didn't do anything to change the sin problem in the survivor's. In chapter 9, verse 6, It's you hear him say, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God has God created man. In other words, sin is now assumed. It's assumed that there will be more murder. So right, So right now there's legislation around about it. There's laws that presuppose a situation of ongoing sin. Or look at verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, he proceeded to plant the vineyard and when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and he lay uncovered inside of his tent. And a sordid scene unfolds. Noah always uh, was part of the problem and we need to remember that. After the flood, there's still the problem of individual sin. But then in chapter 11, there's the problem of corporate sin. Verse 1 in chapter 11 says, The whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. In other words, let's try to organize society in such a way that it, that it manages itself apart from referencing to God. Let's pretend that, that we're God and that we're great and we have all the answers and that we can rule the world. It's like that tears for fears song, you know, everybody wants to rule the world. Verse five, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if if the, at, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. God should know all about the human potential because he made it. And he knows that potential can now be used for doing evil as well as good. So he says, verse 7, come, let's go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So do you get that the judgment of the division and the scattering of mankind? Verse 8, the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. And that's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. There was a judgment, but there's also an act of love because it slowed down. Uh, for all time, our capacity as a race to cooperate in evil. But there's su- salvation and judgment as well. And I want you to see where all this is heading. We saw that promise of salvation right all the way back in chapter 3. But we've also seen the demonstration of judgment in the flood and in the, the confusing of the language of the people at Babel. And it raises the question how is God going to resolve those two things? How is he going to resolve his mercy and his justice? Well, the answer is always through Jesus. Remember earlier I said he's the one that all the genealogies are are heading to. The one who would die on the cross under the judgment we deserve so we can be forgiven. The one who rose from the dead and who is now back in heaven. And who one day he'll click the mouse and wrap up history and judge everyone Who's ever lived to use his own words in Matthew twenty-four thirty-seven, as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be at the coming of the son of man. And Jesus is to us what the ark was to Noah. He's our only hope of escaping judgment. And just as Noah had to get into the ark, we have to get into Jesus in the sense of putting our trust in him and his death for us on the cross. Jesus and his cross is our protection just as the ark was Noah's and I hope that that this Bible study and all of these help you get into Jesus how to put your trust in him to be right with God but if you already trust in Jesus and your trust and following him then take away the lesson of Genesis 4 through 11 that there is no hope in the world apart from Jesus hard as it is It's a kindness to be told the truth, whether by your mechanic about your car or by your maker about yourself and the world. We need to be warned off of false hope. We need to be told to invest our resources, our our time, our energy, our money, our prayers in the one hope that there is for the world. There's no hope for it apart from Jesus. It won't get better because we won't get better. And God in his mercy uses all sorts of things to restrain evil. From the law to circumstantial judgments like the division of of people's languages and groups in, in Genesis 11. And he uses us who know him to stand out in our generation like Noah did in his. But friends, at the end of the day, there's no hope for this world. There's no solution to the sin problem as opposed to the mere restraint of the problem, apart from Jesus. Which is why the best thing we can do for the world is to tell it about him. It's not the only thing we should do for it, but it is the best thing that we can ever do for it. Well, We're going to wrap up there tonight, and I'll finish this uh, next week as we move on in this sketch of the first family. Uh, obviously, there's more to talk about with Cain and Abel as their their work and who they were, and that first family, and we'll go back to that before we slow down uh, and go through these chapters that we've kind of jumped through tonight. But uh, as we end our time together, I'm just going to ask that you would bow with me once more, and uh, let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, I realize that your Word is weighty. There's so much written in your Word. And uh, God, you deserve our very best. So I ask that you get our energy. I ask that you get our focus. I ask that you would establish our homes to be godly homes. Because, Lord, we want to be uh, really your house. We want to be ministered to by your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would bring us into your blessing. Father, we give you a tithe of all that we have because you deserve it. And we will not neglect you. God, you're the greatest truth. You're the greatest hope of our life and the only hope for this world. So be with us now until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless each of you and we'll be together again next week.